the way she sings it to an ex-lover is like every syllable out of her mouth is a knife slicing across an artery or a vein. It is the most vicious, prettiest song I've ever heard. Nick Harcourt, welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. On this week's episode, we welcome John Lukomnik. Sinclair Capital's John Lukomnik was called one of the pioneers of modern corporate governance by Forbes magazine, and he has consulted to institutional investors with aggregate assets of a trillion dollars or more, and has himself been the fiduciary for assets of more than $100 billion. John has served as investment advisor for New York City's pension funds, was the executive director of the Investor Responsibility Research Center Institute, and has been a director for public companies, private companies, not-for-profit corporations, and litigation trusts. John has also published 200 articles in academic and practitioner journals, and his most recent book is Moving Beyond Modern Portfolio Theory. He's also the author of What They Do With Your Money. His previous book before that, The New Capitalists, was a Financial Times pick of the year. John, welcome. Thank you. John, Moving Beyond John, Moving Beyond Modern Portfolio Theory is your newest book, and for the kids at home, can you tell us what modern portfolio theory is? It's tough to say. And what your thesis is for the book. Modern portfolio theory is the paradigm by which virtually everyone in the world invests today. It's the math behind diversification, which sounds perfectly reasonable. The problem is the math works because it's hermetically sealed from the real world. So it, the math doesn't care if the cause of price movements are just company didn't perform well, or if it's climate change or um, gender discrimination or income inequality. And so there are the, the issue with modern portfolio theory is that it works great diversifying those idiosyncratic risks, such as the company just did or did not perform well, but it has no effect on systemic risks, like things caused by climate change, and between 75 and 94% of your return is actually systemic. So it actually focuses you on that which matters least. Thank you for explaining. So the book came out back in April. How's it been doing? It's been doing phenomenally well. We have done more than 20 webinars or podcasts including with some of the largest investment management houses in the world. How have you seen investing change over the years? If you look back at your days of managing the investments for the uh, five New York City pension funds, what are investors more interested in today? How does corporate governance and the ways companies behave and impact the world affect investing now? I would imagine it's different depending on the investor, but can you give us a little broad overview? Partially, but there are two major capital markets changes that affect everyone. First, when modern portfolio theory was invented in the 50s, in 1952, 92% of the marketplace was retail, mom and pop buying a stock. It's almost the exact opposite now. And very few people buy a stock. You buy an index. You buy the S&P 500. You buy the FTSE. You buy the, an aggregate bond index. And so what you're concerned with 
as an investor tends to be more the things that affect the market overall, these systemic drivers of risk and return. Secondly, because everything's institutionalized, um, there's much more focus by the institutions on what they can do to mitigate risk. Hence, they're trying to deal with things like climate change or gender diversity um, and their awareness that they are no longer random price takers in the marketplace, that what they do affects markets via things like risk on, risk off markets, index effects, et cetera. So this podcast that you're on right now is produced by myself with Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. And you're gonna be doing a Spark Network podcast. So tell us a little bit about it. What can we expect? Do you have a name? When will you be launching? I thought I'd call it Sound of Success and uh, <laughs> and rip off uh, someone who actually knows what they're doing. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but carry on. <laughs> um, we're tentatively entitling it Outside In, Investing Lessons from the Real World. And the idea is there will be some financial experts that I speak to, but also an expert in Shakespeare. What did Shakespeare's philosophy as expressed in the plays about money teach us? Or um, Margot Fox has a wonderful book out called The Confidence Men about two British army officers that escaped from an Ottoman Empire prisoner of war camp in World War I by creating a homemade Ouija board and pretending to talk to the dead. And wow. the link to finance is they basically were committing fraud for a good purpose, but how do you recognize it? And what made sophisticated, really knowledgeable Turkish army officers fall for it? So the idea is to bring in literature, music, um, the arts, food, culture, politics, and what can investors learn from an interdisciplinary approach. When did you say the podcast will be launching? Within the next several months. Okay. We'll be sure to be telling people about it when it is up and running. So we've got a, a couple of questions here, and I know you've been studying. So let's go with the first one. What is your first musical memory? And if I can expand on that, the first time that you were aware of music and music caught your attention, whether it was in the car with your parents, uh, at a, a park outside or something like that, your first musical memory. There's so many. I don't know which was first. I grew up in a house that had a piano in the foyer. And so clearly we played the piano, tended to be folk songs, working class folk songs, things like Pete Seeger and Odetta. Um, mm. But the first albums I remember were my sister's nine years older than me. And I remember distinctly hearing Rolling Stones get off of my cloud. I Is that a first musical memory though, where you like plugged into something and were like, I like that? Oh, God, it was everything, Nick. Music was everywhere. I mean, from watching the monkeys on television oh. to my parents took me to Lenny Bernstein's Young People's Concerts at the New York Philharmonic to, I think, the first concert I can ever remember. I must have been six, seven. We were on vacation in Washington, D.C., and my parents took me uh, to a Judy Collins concert. So everything, everywhere, I studied to music, everything from 
Dvorak's New World Symphony to Sly the Family Stone. Mm. <laughs> well, you said there was a piano in the house. Who played the piano? All of us badly. I wish I had any talent. I support a lot of music. I go to a lot of music. I have in my life flunked at piano, guitar, and trumpet. And I don't care how much woodshedding you do, you need some talent to start with. And unfortunately, mine is in listening, not in playing. Well, listen, not everybody can be an amazing musician. I mean, I've tried as well, and it isn't what I do. So I, you know, I'm on the other side of the, of the screen, exactly. so to speak. Well, let's jump forward a little bit. And if you can remember the first music you bought with your own money. It was probably a single. And it's embarrassing now because of what she became, but it was Dionne Warwick, I Say a Little Prayer for You. And I still remember, I think it was on Electra because it had this sort of multicolored label that spun around on the 45. And that's the other thing I remember is in the old days when music was physical, an album or a double album with a gatefold, you would go home and put it on a turntable and sit there and stare at the album cover and read who the players were. And, you know, it would just be two hours of studying that album and listening to music in a way that it was front and center, both physically and orally, as opposed to now where everything's digital. And if you want to know who the players are, you've got to go make a search for it and figure it all out. It's just such a completely different way, obviously, of experiencing the music, not just how you listen to it, but how you engage with the content, as you mentioned, you know, who's playing on it, where was it recorded, et cetera, et cetera. 1967, by the way, Dionne Warwick uh, put out her version of uh, I Say a Little Prayer. Well, then it had to be earlier than that because I was already 11 by then, but perhaps that was the first I did with my, with my own money. Got it, got it. How about concerts without your parents? Without first concert. First concert? Um, I think might have been the Moody Blues in Madison Square Garden, which convinced me never to go to a concert in Madison Square Garden again. <laughs> How old were you? Oh, I don't know. I must have been 15. Were you um, with friends or? With friends. But I then went to a ton of concerts, everything from uh, a Grateful Dead concert at a high school football field in outside of Hartford. I grew up in the Bronx, but just tons of to i was a big new york had a, a a strip in the west village of gertie's folk city the bitter end the other end it was bob dylan and phil oaks and where Fact they all made their yeah. bones back in the in the early 60s and even by the time i was going to concerts alone you know starting in 19 early 70s i would go and listen to all sorts of things in in there and it almost didn't matter who was playing it was just a way to experience new things do you like to dance not usually but sometimes okay well the sometimes that you might find yourself dancing what do you listen to when you want to dance motown i love motown and its successors my daughter gave me a great compliment one day she said i raised her on the beatles and aretha but you know everything from Early Motown, Martha Reeves, up through funk, a lot of Parliament and P-Funk, through Prince, up to Lizzo, to stuff that has either a soul beat 
or a winking sense of humor? It's interesting. I grew up in the UK, as, as you know, and when I was growing up as a 14-year-old and really just beginning to sort of define who, who I thought I was at that time and the music being such a, a big part of it, I didn't really realize at the time that there was kind of like a division between music styles in the UK. It's like you picked a style. So if you were into glam, you didn't listen to Tamla Motown records. If you were into prog rock, you didn't listen to Motown records, etc., etc. And I, and I realized years later what a big loss that was at the time, where it was like, nope, this is what you this is what you do. It's almost like a segregation of the music, to be quite frank with you, that that was going on, not deliberately, I'm sure, but uh, yeah, it was it was different. I didn't. Well, get you know, there Motown was the U.S. Too, too. There were the quote race records end quote, which didn't it didn't make it onto white. Um, owned radio stations. Um, 50s. Well, BBC played everything, right. but you know, it just was a different way of, of people listening. You, Rockers versus mods. Yeah, you found the music you liked, and that's what you listened to. Uh, and I will just very briefly say, I had my 18-year-old son call me the other day and say, hey, have you ever heard of the Four Tops? <laughs> yep. Yes. Um, yeah. What I will say is I had the advantage growing up in New York of some phenomenal DJs going back to Zachary and Scott Muni and Allison Steele and Scott Muni. Yes. And, and Allison Steele, the Nightbird, and, you yep. know, up through Rita Houston, who unfortunately just passed away last year. And I learned early on that the distinction to be made wasn't between soul, rock, pop, jazz. It was between good music and bad music and just stuff you liked. And I loved Rita Houston, who, as I said, unfortunately passed away, was a, a famous DJ here in New York at WFUV, the Fordham University NPR station. And she had, and it still exists, but without her, obviously, a Friday night show called The Whole Wide World, which was deliberately that. It was everything from Texas Swing to hard rap and everything in between. And the eclecticism and learning, this stuff I like better, this stuff I like worse, but learning to love it all was just phenomenal. I knew Rita reasonably well through through the years, mm -hmm. as you can imagine, as a, a fellow radio person. And, and I'm just real, realizing when you're talking about that, that show, again, just uh, what a, a phenomenal resource she was for uh, New York radio listeners. And, and it just made me think we should actually drop an extra question into this to talk a little bit about radio. I mean, obviously, it's what I've done for the last 30 years or so. But I think it's interesting talking to people, uh, depending on their age, about where they discovered music. And obviously, if you're over 40 or 50, definitely, you probably used to discover music on radio. And you just mentioned a couple of amazing uh, DJs from, from New York, uh, from the, the 70s into the 80s in, in particular. So, uh, I think you've just given me an idea to add a, a question in here. But let me jump to the next one that we have on the list for this week, John. We talked about what do you listen to when you dance and Motown set us off that little, on that little tack there. What do you listen to if you're feeling sad? What do you feel? What do you listen to if you're feeling a little melancholic? Sometimes if I am sad, particularly if I'm traveling, there's a Shelby Lynn song. Um, on oh, I love Shelby Lynn. Butterflies Take Me Home to You. And it's just this longing to be home amongst your loved ones. All right. That sounds good. Um, 
Do you have a recent musical discovery that you would like to share with our listeners? And when I say recent, it can be somebody who's been around for a while that you just came into your focus, or it can be somebody who's new that you've just discovered. I love John Batiste's new album. John Batiste, uh, obviously the band leader for the Tonight Show, but in, and also did the uh, music for Soul, the, the Disney Pixar movie. His new album is incredibly well done um, what Motown would be today, what New Jack Swing would be today, but with a jazz overlay. There are other people that I've gotten into recently, Lake Street Dive. I think Rachel's voice is just incredible. Um, That's a band that keeps getting better as well. they, They do. You're in L.A., so I'll throw Dawes into the mix. Dawes, D-A-W-E-F. And then every summer, it seems, I forget this guy, and he has something that is just, you say what makes you happy. Michael Franti and Spearhead, every summer, comes up with some anthem of the summer. That, that just is like, you can't help but sing along. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's got one out now, I think, which is along the lines of be nice to people work or something hard, like that. Work hard and be nice to people, uh, which go, is not yeah. a bad philosophy to have. You, you know, I find that when I play uh, Michael Franti's music on, on the radio, I almost always say that because the, the titles of the songs are always so positive, you know? Exactly. Well, thanks for those. I would also concur with you on the John Baptiste album. It's called We Are. And it is a fantastic record, really, really good. What band or artist do you love that perhaps never got the break that would have turned them into, you know, mainstream artists? When I was in college, there's a woman, she's since had a little bit of a career being a producer, Rachel Farrow, F-A-R-O. She had an album called Refugees. She had good people playing on it. I mean... She had Jack DeJeanette, she had Tito Puente, and it just, she sort of disappeared from that same era. Although the individual band members have had success, I never understood why Poco wasn't bigger. More recently, so you mentioned uh, DJs before, Vin Skelsa, another legendary DJ in New York, about 10 years ago, played this guy, David Mead, M-E-A-D, very poppy, almost like um, a poppy version of Paul McCartney. And I, again, one, one album, haven't heard him do anything since. I, I got to be honest with you, I didn't quite catch the last name of that. So Mead, if M-E-A-D. I didn't, maybe one more time. David Mead, M-E-A-D. You know, okay. it may also be a guilty pleasure. It's a very poppy album. It's one of those that you listen to, you go, why do I like this so much? (laughs) Well, I I love the fact that you said it's like a poppy kind of Paul McCartney because Paul McCartney is kind of like a poppy artist in in most of his material. So I I can only imagine, I do know the name, I just couldn't quite hear your spelling of it. And you've almost jumped into my next question. We're coming down to the last two. A guilty pleasure, a band or an artist that perhaps not everybody likes, but you know, when you're at home alone or you're in the car, you're like, yeah, let me put that on. Um, 
I'll go back in time because it also was one of my earlier answers on early music influences. And I would say it's a guilty pleasure, but the songs were all written by Carol King and Jerry Gothen. And that's the monkeys, um, you know, and some of those songs are just incredibly well-crafted pop music songs, as you would expect from Carol King and Jerry Goffin. The fact that the players may have not been perfect, they were perfect for those songs at that time. You were talking about the monkeys earlier on, and I remember being a kid in, in Birmingham in England watching the monkeys and it was around about the same time there was a, there was another weird california show weird for me as a you know 12 year old in birmingham in the midlands banana splits and they were these sort of weird sort of characters like weird bears or whatever that would also play music and drive around sand dunes in southern california and it's a long time ago but i remember watching both of those shows and being like that looks like a really weird place i want to go there and you know here here I am, and it is. But it's also the home of, of course, speaking of other cells, Laurel Canyon and Jody Mitchell and, and everything else, which is just spectacular. So we've been talking for about I know, 30 minutes now. We're just about to, to wrap it up. You're on the East Coast in the afternoon, on the West, around about lunchtime here. But how are you feeling after just talking about music for, for a half hour? I feel fine, but I got to tell you, if you have 10 more minutes, I want to extend it. And I want to extend it because the first musical experience, the first thing you bought, or the first concert, yeah, they're formative, but they're almost happenstance. You were six or 12. And I'd love to spend two minutes on just like phenomenal musical memories. Like I mentioned an Aretha concert. I wanted to take my kids to see Aretha. We go see her in Radio City. She's doing Dr. Feel Good and rocking it out and gets up and pulls off her wig and just the place goes crazy. Or Erica Badu leading a conga line around the old city winery or the Simon and Garfunkel concert in Central Park that I was lucky enough to go to. And so sometimes it's the things that happen to you mid musical career are every bit as formative as those first things. I just really wanted to mention those. So while we were in, in our conversation, I talked about adding another question to this little Proust questionnaire. And, and I think we have another one. Man, you're coming up with some great suggestions here. Nastiest song. That, that was your idea. The nastiest song that you've ever heard is? Diana Krall singing Crimea River. It's obviously a standard, but the way she sings it to an ex-lover is like every syllable out of her mouth is a knife slicing across an artery or a vein of the ex-lover. It is the most vicious, prettiest song I've ever heard. Well, you know, art, if it's done in a certain way, can definitely kill. There's no doubt about it. So I love that. You can really take somebody down in a song. If you're uh, somehow just been listening to this and didn't catch the beginning of it, our guest on The Sound of Success this week is John Lukomnik. And uh, man, it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, hearing a little bit about your musical journey. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com.